on this episode of China Unscripted. The world is running out of time. We must decouple with China before they decouple with us. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. The U.S. and China are at war. It isn't a kinetic war, but it is an ideological war. And unfortunately, the Chinese Communist Party is kind of kicking our butts. We're going to get into a story about how China is working to decouple with the U.S., which could have devastating consequences for the United States. But first, since this is an ideological battle, and I don't think a lot of people really understand this, I think we should take a look at how the Chinese Communist Party celebrated its 100th birthday. I mean, have you seen some of those, the, the, the celebration they did? It, it was extreme cult-like behavior. Yeah, well, the Chinese Communist Party is basically the world's most powerful cult. It's a good way to put it. I mean, look, they are a cult. They, they force you to believe their ideology. Uh, it's very difficult to leave. Once you become a member, you have to pledge your life to the flag, essentially. You have to, you have to pledge yourself to the party. You also have to pay some amount of membership dues. So they're taking your money. They have a, a possibly charismatic leader that you have to follow. Uh, you can't stray ideologically or they punish you. They have their own system of punishment, the Shuanggui, which they do to party members, which is outside the normal legal system. Just like, and then, you know, of course, all of the other things that they do to people, but like, those are pretty cult-like things, not to mention those creepy photos from July 1st. Yeah, but I don't think that, like, like I don't really like using the word cult for this because I think that just an exaggeration of what people experience on the ground in a lot of ways in terms of joining the Communist Party, because for most people, they think of it as uh, basically when Jack Posobiec was on Posobiec was on last week, we talked about how it was like the one percent of China, the party members. So they see it as a way of just getting up in the world. Like if you want to get a raise or a promotion at your company, you have to join the party, or maybe if you want to get into a good, uh, you know, PhD program, you should join the party. I think this is really key to kind of what I was saying at the beginning about how this is an ideological war with the U.S. For many years, the Chinese Communist Party had to, in a way, play nice to lure in uh, Western democracies to work with it, especially in the years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. There was a lot of suspicion. I just think that it's this is how most people kind of experience it. So they have to pay dues, but a lot of people just don't pay dues anymore. And then the Communist Party doesn't count them as having left the party. But so it's a party you can never leave. They but they essentially are not really part of it or. For example, the... But they have pledged to live and die for the party. Like well, that pledge doesn't I'm just saying. go away. So, okay, okay, I, I, get, I get where you're coming from. And I think the, the other thing that's sort of in favor of your argument is that the word cult is an ill-defined term. And it's mainly used as like a kind of general description of something that you don't like. So I get that. And yeah, there's like a you know sliding scale of what's a cult versus what's a religion. Certainly, you would agree, Shelley, that the Chinese Communist Party essentially has created a religion, right? I mean, they've basically used they they supplanted religions in China, essentially. Right, but the Communist Party has its own ideological system of beliefs, right? 
Yeah. And I think they've used increasingly religious language. This is kind of the point I was trying to make about the cult thing, that even up until from after Mao died and up until, you know, the last few years, people joined the party because of just kind of like a personal interest type of thing, not because they thought that they really believed in communism, etc. It's like you joined something thinking it wasn't for real, but now it's for real. Do you know what I mean? Now it's kind of taking on the religious or, you know, when Xi Jinping says that go, you have to go to uh, on a pilgrimage to uh, Yan'an where the party, you know, was had its base for many years and it's a it's a spiritual experience or, you know, they, they're kind of increasingly using that or when you have increasing things like churches in China having to put up pictures of Mao and Xi Jinping, you know, so it's kind of, I would say it's moving increasingly in that direction, but I think a lot of people wouldn't have experienced it that way up until very recently. So is it more like the Mao Zedong days now than it was under, say, Deng Xiaoping or or Jiang Zemin? I think it's, the party's always been there, but people didn't really take it seriously for a long time in terms of, you. yeah, you had to go to take your Marxist-Leninist class at school, right? And everybody just did it. Uh, but nobody really thought that this is something we have to take seriously. Uh, but now, you know, Xi Jinping has been very clear that he, what he doesn't want to do is become Gorbachev. Like, he's not really willing to put the party's power at risk. You're saying Xi Jinping essentially now wants ideological purity among party members. He's bringing the ideology back to the forefront in a way that it hasn't been. I think this is really key to kind of what I was saying at the beginning about how this is an ideological war with the U.S. For many years, the Chinese Communist Party had to, in a way, play nice to lure in uh, Western democracies to work with it, especially in the years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. There was a lot of suspicion about what kind of regime it was. But now what we've seen is the party has gained so much power and influence and feels like they can do anything and Wall Street will be on their side. We've seen now that they can kind of show their true faiths, which is what the party has always been. It's interesting that the party tries to both claim, you know, we've been around for 100 years, look at how great we are, and at the same time just try to ignore all the things like the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. You know, it's like we are the same party, but also we didn't do any of those things. And and also not a whole lot of mention of how it was actually started by agents from the Soviet Union. Oh, well, Let's because Mao purged those people way well, yes. back in the, you know, during the Yan'an rectification. Right. I mean, no mention of essentially the, the Chinese Communist Party being a foreign, uh, like having a foreign origin. Right. I mean, it's essentially Marxist Leninist, which is itself Western and foreign, but also it was the Soviet Union's third common turn that, you know, came to China through its, its Far East Bureau and attempted to start the Chinese version of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, which then Mao, yeah, he kind of like took that to be his own thing and purged the, the Soviets eventually. But like, that's the origin of the party, which is not really... Uh, something they want to talk about. I mean, that's the beauty of socialism with Chinese characteristics is that they can kind of claim the legacy of, you know, this Marxist party, but also claim the legacy of of China and the 5,000 years of history 
which they, of course, tried to destroy many times under their 100 years of existence. But let's forget about that part. You know, so it's it's like they want to be both this powerful party that's lasted for 100 years, um, but they also want to claim that they're not the same party that they were in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 80s, even though they have never, you know, repudiated any of those things that they've done. Well, it's not even so much that they're claiming they're not they're not that party anymore. It's just any of the bad things that happened back then that didn't happen. So it's always been the same great party leading China to a new future, protecting the Chinese people from the Westerners who want to enslave the Chinese people. And that was a point Xi Jinping made in his uh, his big speech at the 100-year anniversary. You know, he was saying anyone who wants to oppress or enslave China will have their heads bloodied, something I, like that. I don't Smashed think it was even— the Great uh, Wall of Steel. Forged by 1.4 billion Chinese people. Beautiful word. Flesh and blood. Yeah. Uh, and and so it's interesting because he's using like the language of like, you know, obviously anyone who's trying to enslave China, like that's not good. That's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about this ideological war with the United States. Uh, and that encompasses things like U.S. boycotts of Xinjiang cotton because Xinjiang cotton is made with ethnic slave labor. Yeah, I mean, I think... It wasn't just about enslaving Chinese people because... He said, like, oppress, enslave. It was bully. 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 So the bully part, I think, is important because, you know, a lot of countries talk about, you know, oh, we we won't be slaves or whatever. But the bully part is the type of propaganda that the Chinese Communist Party uses to uh, basically claim that anytime anybody stands up to them or rejects something that they want to do, that is bullying China, right? And this ties into what you were saying about, like, the patriotic education that happened after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Now, you you said that, you know, uh, the young people going to these Marxist-Leninist class, they don't really believe in communism, they don't really believe in the party. But that is not, that was not the focus of that. That was to implant this kind of uh, ideology that you're talking about, where they are primed to be triggered by that language. Oh yeah, we don't want we don't want to be bullied by foreign powers. The Communist Party is there to defend us from these Western bullies. So even though they might not be, you know, waving around the little Maoist red books, they still have been implanted with this communist ideology that can be triggered very easily. I mean, that was the point of the patriotic education and the whole turn towards socialism with Chinese characteristics. Uh, Because once they started becoming, uh, you know, everything was different from other Marxist-Leninist states and the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that the collapse of communism in most of the world meant that they couldn't really draw on that strength anymore. So they had to kind of change it to be something else that they could. It's kind of like what North Korea did with Juche in a way. Yeah where they, you know, they took Marxist-Leninist thought and then were like, okay, we're not uh, Marxist-Leninist more n- anymore. Now we're we, we're self-reliant. Is that the, like, it's it's not well, self-reliant. It's something well, similar they're, they're, to that. But their, their Juche system is essentially a Marxist-Leninist communist ideology with like a, a little bit of rebranding with a few things borrowed from the Christian Bible. Uh, to prop up Kim Il-sung and, and, you know, how he 
poops rainbows or whatever. And then I think the thing is he doesn't. He doesn't poop. poop yeah, yeah. But there were rainbows when he was born. Something like this. We're getting uh, some of the details of Juche ideology mixed up here. Well, but anyway, the point is that they just they just call it a different thing, and then it's their own thing. Well, this ties back into postmodernism in general, which is kind of a lot of where communism is coming from. The, there are no actual hard and fast definitions to things. Things can be whatever you want them to be, and that's been very effective in how. I know you've talked about this a lot, Shelley. How the Chinese Communist Party can manipulate language to be whatever it wants, to serve whatever needs it has. Right, so I call myself a nice guy and I can define nice however I want. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Well, like, so the uh, for the celebration of the 100-year anniversary, the Chinese Communist Party released a white paper on human rights. And it said they have the best human rights. Yeah, because, uh, you know, everybody's... Universal human rights are definitely universal, but every country interprets them in a different way. Yeah, that was yeah. how they, they right. did it. And, and they defined it as like subsistence, and, and I forget the other word. Development. And yeah, development, economic development. So as long as the party lifts people out of poverty, no mention of how they kind of change the definition of poverty, uh, as long as that's the case, then they're providing the best human rights because also they're providing human rights human rights to more people because they have a fifth of the world's population. I'm really glad we now have the podcast on video on YouTube so people can see the quotation marks that you just can't, did. Can't people hear the quotation marks? Well, no, and I, it's like, you know, human rights or human rights, the second one had quotation marks around it. Okay, yeah. But at any rate, yeah, so now, so that, like, that definition, like, no other country can have better human rights because if China provides it to a fifth of the world's population then no country can be more than that because no country has a bigger population. And this is a great example of the of why the Chinese Communist Party is in an ideological war with the United States. Essentially what the Chinese Communist Party is saying is, you know, we have our definition of human rights. You can have yours. Just don't force your values on us. And to a lot of people, that sounds reasonable. You don't want, uh, you know, other cultures, other people forcing their beliefs on you. But if you look at what's happening to the Uyghurs, that's evil. If you look at the organ harvesting, Falun Gong, that's evil. Everything the Chinese Communist Party has done in the past hundred years to the Chinese people is evil. And this is why the United States is such a threat to the Chinese Communist Party, because in the foundation upon which the United States is built on is the idea that human rights are not something meted out by committee. They are inalienable rights that are bestowed, that are a fundamental part of human existence given by the creator or nature. These are the words the founding father are using, but that they are something transcendent, not something that a government can choose to give or not to give. And this is the biggest threat to the Chinese Communist Party, that there are unchangeable truths. Well, we may hold these truths to be self-evident, but I don't think the Chinese Communist Party sees them as self-evident because they believe ideologically that rights come from them. In the Chinese constitution, it's essentially that you have these rights as long as they don't go against the interests of the state. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, you bring up the, um, the U.S. founding fathers and this idea that rights come from the creator, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Also, like, it's interesting the, the context in which the Declaration of Independence was written, right? It's like you had, 
you had a, a sort of elite group of, of you know intelligent, well educated men in the in the American colonies, uh, and you know, okay, you're giving me that look because yes, there's some things that are problematic, and some of them were slave owners, and but that's not the that's true. That's not the direction I'm I want to go in, but the the point is that they were they they were these very intelligent educated men who were feeling that they were oppressed by an even greater eliter more powerful group which was the uh, the british king the english king <laughs> the group that was the english king that's why they yeah. say we <laughs> yeah exactly right and so okay well i understand it actually was parliament but they for political reasons didn't want to say it okay so sure. Thank you for for being accuracy ninja. The point is that you had people who had this ability to create a new system who were themselves feeling this sort of yoke of oppression. Uh, and so that's kind of where their whole like rights can't be given by the crown or by the king or by parliament, right? Rights come from the creator and thereby uh, are able to sort of define what human rights or rights ought to be, you know, because they weren't people in power because people in power typically are like, oh, like, I'm happy to give you some rights, but they're for me. And so you now had rights being defined by people who were not in power. And by not being in power, they were representing the vast majority of people in a way that people in power are never representing the vast majority of people. That is the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The French Revolution was basically a proto-communist revolution, where everything still came from the state. I don't know what they if the state is the right word for that, what that revolution put into power. But it is also a fundamental difference between how the United States looks at human rights and pretty much every other country on the planet. Most European countries, they don't look at it like this. Mm. They talk about human rights. They talk about freedom of speech, but it's still not something they don't talk about it as if it's a transcendent, inalienable thing. Well, right. I don't know if that's true, because essentially a lot of I think you would have British people, for example, talking about how the Magna Carta was essentially in a lot of ways that for them. And the Magna Carta was the first type of restriction on. Uh, the absolute the power, of the, power monarch. of the monarch, yeah. But I mean, like France, for example, has freedom of speech. I'm using quotes again. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> for everyone listening on uh, podcast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Uh, so while France has freedom of speech, it's also in a little, a little bit like China in that your freedom of speech is only guaranteed insofar as you don't infringe on national interests. Right. And so after the the yellow vest protests a couple of years ago, like the French police arrested thousands of people for protesting and, and, and charged them because they, they can do that under French law. Right. Whereas in the U.S., like no matter what horrible things you might say about the government or like the most like, you know, obscene, terrible things you say in a protest, like you still have actual freedom of speech as long as you're not, you know, violent, for example. And so the U.S. could have never done to, to completely peaceful protesters what the French government was easily able to do under their own laws, which is to say France is less free than the United States. 
similar restrictions exist in Germany. Uh, New Zealand is a great example of this. New Zealand. Well, they have like a like classification a sens- office, who and the head of that is called the chief censor. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the American view on human rights is unique in the world, which I think is one of the reasons why uh, the Chinese Communist Party is so invested in an ideological war against the U.S. In particular, because I feel it is this American ideology that has made the U.S. so successful. It has created a system of prosperity for the world that is a challenge to the Chinese Communist Party model, which is why we see the Communist Party trying to develop this alternative system to supplant what the United States has created. I mean, I don't think they could have done it, essentially, until now. They always did not like relying on the U.S. or Western systems, but they basically made a calculation that they couldn't really go up against it economically, especially. Mm-hmm. Before the podcast began, you were telling us about um, Didi, this uh, ride-sharing service thing in China. I think that's a really good example of, it's a specific example of how China is beginning to develop this alternative system. We've talked before about how as long as the Chinese Communist Party relies on U.S. dollars, they are vulnerable to U.S. sanctions. So they're trying to create their own uh, model of U.N. or digital U.N. But I think this is a, this investment is a very good example. Well, there are a few things going on with DD that are complicated. So essentially what happened is that DD... So Shelley, what's DD? I was just about to go into that before you interrupted me. Thank you. Hey, I identify as nice. <laughs> So Didi is a ride-sharing app, kind of like the Uber of China, you could say. Could you define to us what Uber is? um, (laughs) Thank you for being on my side. I don't know if that was being on your side. I I had no particular motive behind that statement. Well, there's three of us, so two of us have to gang up on the other person. That's true. That's, That's communism. You know... A train of thought can be easily derailed. That's why you should hail a cab through DD, China's number one ride-sharing You can't app. do it right now because they've taken them off all the app stores. It's a fascinating story. Tell me more. Okay, so DD was the Uber of China, and uh, a couple weeks ago they had a successful IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, raised $4.4 billion. And, you know, they're basically the biggest ride-sharing app in China. So everybody was like, okay, this is great. We can make a lot of money. And then suddenly the regulator, uh, the Chinese state regulator, last week decided to pull the app from all the app stores in China. Basically, they said that Didi had some problems with their data uh, management. Uh, And so then they lost something like $15 billion dollars on the stock exchange after that happened. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. You, you know what I wonder is, so a lot of Westerners invested in this and then their money disappeared, but it didn't necessarily disappear. I wonder who short sold the stock before the regulators made their decision. Oh, I'm getting GameStop vibes. Yeah, I don't know. Well, well because Didi, like all other companies in China, is at the whims of a small number of extremely powerful bureaucrats. 
or regulators in this case. So uh, is it, I mean, I don't, I don't know what happened, but like the regulators were, had to know that as soon as they made this decision, it was going to plunge the stock price after this recent IPO, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things going on here. One thing is that it's not clear why the Chinese regulators suddenly did this to Didi. Uh, one thing is that apparently before they had even done their IPO, that um, the state regulator kept asking them to take off sensitive locations from their mapping. Uh, you know, because every rideshare app, you can see where you're going, whatever. They were uh, they they were concerned that when Didi IPO'd, then that data could be seen by, you know, foreign governments, essentially. Uh, so you don't want, you know, sensitive military installations or, you know, concentration camps. There might be certain sensitive information that the Chinese Communist Party did not want Didi to have in its IPO. Uh, the other thing is that they're trying to crack down on tech companies in general, and especially companies that are IPOing in the U.S. or other countries. So they don't really want these companies going out to get foreign investment in New York or in London anymore, which is the way that a lot of Chinese companies have been doing it for years. That's a big change. Yes. So, you know, for a long time, this was a great uh, win-win for Chinese companies and the Chinese Communist Party because these companies would come abroad, get a lot of foreign investment, and then that money goes into China. Particularly right? U.S. dollars, yeah. Yeah, and they the, the party relies on U.S. dollars to manage their monetary system. And they don't like that. But I think what's happening now is that with this wider crackdown on companies that are IPOing in the U.S., Essentially, it's a signal from the state that they don't really want companies doing this anymore. Maybe they prefer companies to IPO in Shanghai or Hong Kong. And therefore, it's a way of decoupling with the U.S. because they essentially believe now that there's enough interest from foreign investors that the foreign investors will happily uh, come to China instead. And this is big because in the Trump administration, there was a lot of talk about the U.S. decoupling from the Chinese economy. And the Chinese Communist Party hated that idea. They, they frequently said how bad that idea would be. However, they don't want the U.S. to decouple from China, but they would love if China could decouple from the U.S. And those are different things. Yeah. So the Chinese way of decoupling is the, with the U.S. would be, well, we're not going to bring our companies to the New York Stock Exchange so you guys can make money here, you're going to have to come to China and do your business in Yuan. Wasn't that what that uh, Chinese professor was saying? Yeah, basically. I mean, it's not like he was an especially high up person. I think he just like gave some accurate analysis. Had his finger on the pulse. And, uh, you know, this is something we see with, you know, companies like BlackRock going into China now and being told, well, you can just, you can set up your mutual funds here and you don't need to have a you know, Chinese partner company anymore. You know, City, Merrill, like a lot of these companies, financial companies are being told, well, now you can come into China. Which is why this is such a dangerous but hopeful time right now. The Chinese Communist Party in this ideological war is trying to create this separate system that will then dominate and overpower the liberal world order we have now. Uh, Eventually, we will be unable to fight that system. 
Yeah, as soon as they can basically get off the dollar, then, for example, sanctions against Chinese officials for human rights violations for genocide won't work anymore. It would mean as much as China sanctioning Ted Cruz which right now, they which, did. which they did. Yeah. And Ted Cruz is like, I'm not going to Shanghai. So it doesn't really matter. I don't have any money that goes anywhere near China. So that's what they're trying essentially to do. And you mentioned Xi Jinping's speech earlier in the podcast, and we were all talking about the whole, you know, bloodied heads uh, for against that Great Wall of Steel. And I think a lot of people like hyper focused on that because it was it, it was violent imagery. But in the rest of his speech, a lot of what he was talking about was this idea that China is going to decouple from the rest of the world. Uh, that we need to depend on ourselves, we need to like grow our self-reliance in China, you know, our businesses. Like he talked about all of this stuff in that speech, uh, and it's not the first time that he's explicitly said this. He said this when uh, last year when they were coming up with the five-year plan, that you know we are going to essentially. He said we need to decrease our dependency on other countries while also making other countries more dependent on us for, you know, manufacturing and things like that. He was talking about decreasing the dependence on, you know, natural resources from other countries, that kind of thing. He doesn't want China to rely on Australian, uh, you know, iron ore to make steel, that kind of stuff. But he wants Australia to have to come to China to buy electronics. And this actually segues really nicely into the other big news item uh, recently, uh, China's space ambitions. Recently, uh, China just completed its first uh, manned spacewalk. It successfully sent uh, three astronauts to uh, the beginnings of their space station, what they will call an international space station. The Tiangong. Heavenly Palace. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so this ideological war is even extending into space. Chinese Communist Party is trying to dominate space, and if it does, it will be able to deny access to anyone that doesn't play by the party's rules. Already, uh, they are developing space weapons that can blind U.S. satellites, which, if that happens, say goodbye to GPS, that would not only hurt Uber, which is the American version of Didi, for those who don't know. Well, I think, actually, as well as military GPS. you joke, but as soon as it becomes like that. That's a sign that, you know, that's right, that they've won the war that like if we start referring to Google as the Chinese version of Baidu or the American version of Baidu yeah. or whatever, right? Twitter, uh, America's version of Weibo. But, you know, if they if they destroy the American GPS system, there's always China's competing system. Exactly. Which is which called the um, Beidou. Be Beidou, yeah. Which they only finished everything last year like they launched the last well, satellite just in time yeah. for us to all switch over to their system but this is really a huge threat china is teaming up with russia last space race was u.s versus russia now it's going to be u.s versus russia and china it's already not so good and china and russia are working to be the first to build a moon base be the first to have an orbiting station around the moon remember when newt gingrich ran for president back in 2012. He was a prophet. And he wanted to build a moon base. And everybody was like, this guy is so nuts, you know. And it really is a shame because America's enemies were not joking around with this. We're, we are in a very dangerous situation if Russia and China control space. 
space warfare is essentially already here. Yeah, uh, I think that people think of, you know, Star Wars or something. When you say think space warfare, you think of like pew, pew, pew in space, mm-hmm. but that's not really what you're talking in about. In space, no one can hear you pew, pew, pew. Mm-hmm. That's true. But also, like, if you look at what the, the U.S. Space Force is, like, it's not a force in space the way the Navy is a force in the seas. It is a force that is almost exclusively on the ground on Earth, but is doing a whole bunch of things related to objects in space or like, you know, robotic uh, or, you know, smart objects in space, satellites and whatnot. And yes, we'll eventually have spacecraft, but that's perhaps quite a long ways out. And this is a good distinction, too, because most of America's space activity has been done by NASA, which is a civilian agency, or more recently, private companies like SpaceX. China, their space program is run by the People's Liberation Army, the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party itself. Yeah, that's a little scary. Well, it shows you the difference. Like, this is China's space activities are a military operation. Well, I mean, to a degree, the Communist Party considers everything a military operation, including its private companies, with quotation marks, uh, operating around the world, like Huawei, for example. Yeah, they call it civil military fusion. Everything, and this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning of the podcast, everything is under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And by extension, it's military. It's like, you know... Every time there's some new law that Congress is in the U.S. is considering, like a surveillance law or something like that, there's always people in Congress who are like, I don't think the government should have that much power, right? Uh, and, you know, in China, every time there's something that they want to do that's going to give the Communist Party more power, like, okay, they just take it. it you know, I was just thinking about how... The problem here is that so much of the world just doesn't understand this about the Chinese Communist Party, about the Chinese regime. I think it's kind of taboo to even mention ideological conflicts in this day and age. Yeah, because it feels like we're over that. You know, that's so 1960s. Yeah, everyone has their different values. The U.S. shouldn't force its values on China. Well, I wasn't even thinking about that part of it. I I was thinking about... Uh, that's tied into it, but I was just thinking about the whole like, oh, we don't want to call it a cold, cold war, wars, yeah, because that's just not like that's there's something distasteful about using that. We're term. more civilized. We're we're at the end of history now. We're above that. And uh, if we're not careful, we will be at the end of history. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about this guy we wrote about uh, for headlines, Ian Lipkin, the Columbia yeah. University professor, who he had been one of the signers of that opinion piece in nature medicine that was saying that, oh, well, there's probably no way that this could have come from the coronavirus could come from a lab. Uh, And then, you know, it turns out that he has all of these ties with the Chinese Communist Party because He, he got the top award for foreign scientists at a ceremony presided over by Xi Jinping. He got an award from Dr. Shi Zheng Li, the bat Corona, the bat woman, the one who was doing coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, she gave him an award. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the thing, right? If you treat China like it's just a normal country, just like France or the UK, you know, what struck me about looking at uh, the stuff about Lipkin is that 
Columbia University splashed this information as press releases, right? They were like, oh, yes, China is honoring one of our professors with the top scientific medal presided by Xi, over by Xi Jinping. Or, you know, China is awarding him. He got another medal last year that was commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's rule over China. And it was done at the Chinese consulate, like the consul general gave him the award, all this, you know, all these this fancy stuff. And so if it is the UK or France or whatever, you're like, oh, yeah, that is really prestigious, right? But then that award that he got last year was partially given by the Central Military Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, of uh, You know, it's just these things that, you know, if you treat China like a normal country, like, oh, yeah, that's great that he got these awards. Uh, if you treat them like a authoritarian regime that's committing genocide. It's like, do you really want to be splashing that all over the front page of your university that like your your professor got an award from a country that's committing genocide? You know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, recently we had Yongmi Park, the North Korean defector on, and she was sharing with us her experience at Columbia University and how this kind of uh, woke ideology has taken over the school. And it can have... Massive foreign policy effects. Well, in a generation when like the national leadership is all like graduating from these Ivy League universities and they're coming to government with whatever the ideology they learned in university. Or, or even right now, like this kind of ideology could make, you know, the, the leadership at the school feel more, uh, uh, more comfortable with China, that the Chinese Communist Party is doing good things or whatever. And so now you have a professor with really disturbing ties to the Chinese Communist Party actively arguing against a lab leak hypothesis, making it so no one can talk about that, that that's just a fringe conspiracy theory. That's already having a huge impact. I mean, I'm not even saying that he's necessarily doing this out of some kind of you know, because he's he's a stooge for the Communist Party or anything like that. It's just that he started working in China after the SARS outbreak in 2003. And so, you know, he worked with all these scientists who, and I'm sure they did some good things in terms of like, oh, building, you know, a better res- pandemic response system in China or whatever. Wor- but then you kind great. of... When you kind of, well, it would have worked great if the... If, if it had been designed in a way that didn't rely on the Chinese Communist Party. Well, what happened was that uh, people were afraid in Wuhan to report it, right? Right. This so is the one system, of those stories so the system that we've kind of forgot work. about. Yeah, the design. It wasn't the design of the system. It was that it's it, it, it. The system was also under a communist system where nobody wants to be the first to give bad news because then you get responsible and you get in trouble for yeah, it. Yeah, they designed a system that would have worked in the U.S. Right. But it's because right. nobody understands. The ideological difference of the Chinese communist. Well, like you, can, you was, can design a building that's a great building, but if you build it on a sand dune, it's not going to work as intended. Well, my point here was more that, you know, from this guy's perspective, it's not necessarily that he was bought off by the CCP. I mean, some people are, no, but I'm, not I, everybody needs I'm to I'm sure be. he thinks he's independent and very, very smart. And, you know, doing a good thing, right? Like working with scientists in China to prevent global panic. Like, this it's is the, the failure to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party is fundamentally evil. And it's a failure to recognize this ideological battle that is happening. 
But this is what happens to a lot of people. Yes, yeah, that's this why is, we're not doing so well. Th- this is what happens where you kind of go to China and it's, you know, these great, beautiful skyscrapers and the high-speed trains and, you know, you see everything is going so wonderfully and they're like, oh, you can come be a guest lecturer at our university. We're looking for more prestigious scientists the to Chinese work with The Chinese Communist Party is very good yeah. at playing on the... Uh, egos? Egos of the elite. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't even have to be people who are elite. Like we who think they are. We you know, I have I know people who they understand what's happening in China because they're friends with me and they know what's happening, right? But they've gone to China and there's still a little bit of that, you know, when they talk about their trip there, even though they weren't kind of wined and dined at five-star restaurants, they still have a little bit of that like, "Oh, Shanghai," you know, mm-hmm. even though they know that there are huge, massive human rights problems. There's there's something that's kind of a little bit blinding about seeing that. They're blinded by the lights. But uh, I I can see that. And it's also part of the whole, uh, like the, what the Communist Party does for tourists, and increasingly so, is if you go to visit China on, on business or, or as a tourist, like they will always steer you towards certain things that are designed for you to see. So Beijing and Shanghai and a few other cities are all kind of designed this way. And it's increasingly difficult to just like go off somewhere and see other parts of China that are just like not so good. And this is the real risk, because if people fail to recognize this ideological war now, it won't be long before the Chinese Communist Party can supplant the U.S., as we were saying, if it has its own capabilities in space, its own economic system that's self-sustaining. And then very quickly, we will come to realize the true nature of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they've been telling us all along. We just kind of don't pay attention to that part. Yeah. It's it's like we, we believe them when they say, give us money and it'll help us reform. But we don't believe them when they say actually true things like, we are going to invade Taiwan. Uh, we are going to decouple. We are going to like take over this, you know, we're going to dominate uh, technology and innovation and manufacturing. Like, why are we not listening to the true things they say? And instead, we're listening to all the lies they tell us. I mean, also, they say those things pretty directly. But there's there's the other stuff that they say about you know, the shared human, the shared future of mankind, win-win, win-win cooperation. cooperation. It's all kind of with that type of language. You're in right. There. It's it's so beautiful. Yeah. You're right. You know what? I let me let me retract what I said. I think we should just try to establish a win-win mutual cooperation with China, mm-hmm. and it'll help them, you know, adopt our values. If only we had a time machine to assassinate Marx. No, I I don't think that ever works. The time travel. What what would you want to use the time machine for? She'd assassinate Rousseau. He started a lot of this. I see you've been talking to Josh again. I've been reading, Shelley. I have some literature you should read. It's like it's like if if you had an actual working time machine, is that what you is that what you do? You go back and assassinate someone? I was actually just thinking about going back to the the 90s and stopping them from, you know, I wasn't even thinking that far back. I was thinking about going back to the 90s and getting one of the original Tamagotchis. You know, they have an app on the phone now. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not quite the same, but yeah, no, I was thinking about the whole World Trade Organization. Yeah, you know, most favored nation trading status stuff. Remember how, like, during that time, it was like the the far left in the U.S. protesting against the WTO, and they're like, "It's going to take American jobs and hurt American workers." And then Bill Clinton and the Democratic Party were like, "No, no, that's too extreme. It's going to be fine. Let's work with China." And then when Donald Trump says pretty similar things, albeit with a different tone <laughs> about China taking American jobs, it's like suddenly like he's off his rocker. Racist and xenophobic. I mean, not to defend some of the ways in which Trump said things, which aren't exactly phrased diplomatically, uh, to say the least, but at the core of it, like the people who are opposed, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, the people who are opposed to doing more trade with China were right all along. And they've just been poo-pooed all along because there are certain interests in the US, namely Wall Street types and other elite types tied to Wall Street uh, that just want this, this trade and this you know opportunity uh, irrespective of what it does to our value system or our own American economy in the long term. And the sad thing is they are ultimately useful idiots. The Chinese Communist Party will like present them with the idea of like, oh yeah, you, you will also get to be the elite. This is kind of like what we were talking about with Jack Sovic the other week, how to these guys, to like the Bloombergs or the Elon Musks, life is a game of SimCity. And they love going to China and talking about the infrastructure and, oh, yeah, like I can put a, a nuclear plant here and a, and a highway here, just like SimCity. And you never have to worry about the stupid little Sims who you, you bulldoze their houses to make things over. But at the end of the day, the Wall Street types, if the Chinese Communist Party is successful at establishing what it's very close to establishing, the Wall Street types aren't going to be in charge. They aren't going to be making money. They're going to lose everything. I mean, they already have successively throughout many, many industries. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. that, first of all, people are embarrassed about this. So when it happens, nobody talks about it. Like when they take over all of the solar, you know, panel manufacturing or they take over the wind turbine manufacturing. Like this, I mean, this is something we spoke to a couple of years ago with a cybersecurity expert that like most Companies have been hacked by China, but they don't make it public because it's embarrassing. It'll hurt the stocks and it'll get their uh, like CEOs or whatever fired because the shareholders will be upset. Yeah. So it's like industry after industry goes into China and loses everything and then nobody gets in trouble for it. Uh, manufacturing goes, then, you know, drug, the pharmaceutical companies, Hollywood, just industry after industry. Now, Finance is Hollywood was the last big one, and now finance is the new one that's going in. Like we talked about BlackRock, Merrill Lynch, City, all of these companies. The good thing is that when these giant companies like Citigroup go into China and lose tons of people's money, it's uh, not their money. It's not their money. And also, they're too big to fail. So the government will just bail them out through, you know printing money or using taxpayer dollars. So that's kind of solves that problem, Shelley. Well, the nice thing about an ideological war is that 
Like when people become aware of it, that's already a huge step in the war. Because what we don't want is a kinetic war. Actual, you know, guns being fired, bombs going off. And the best protection from a kinetic war is the ability of the United States to have deterrence. But that requires the United States to still have power, to have a strong military, to have financial systems intact, to prevent China from creating its own system that is cushioned from anything the United States can do. So the further this goes, the weaker U.S. deterrence gets. And the weaker U.S. deterrence gets, closer to kinetic war we will actually get to. Taiwan will suffer first for this. Right. Well, so you're arguing that the best way to stop kinetic war uh, with China is for the U.S. to be so prepared for kinetic war that it acts as a deterrent, right? It's very similar to how so, the U.S. had dealt with the Soviets. Right. So let's now map that onto everything else that China is currently at war with the U.S. over, you know, whether it's, you know, drug warfare, media warfare, legal warfare, and so on, right? If the U.S. could be robust enough in its own systems then that would act as a deterrent to stop China from taking over. So like manufacturing, for example, the Communist Party sees itself in a sort of trade and manufacturing war with the United States. And they, they actually view it as this warfare. And so if the America uh, can have its own system of manufacturing robust enough, then then that's a deterrent for China to be able to use it for anything because they just they just can't. And so now map that onto like like everything else. Just just a quick for example for that point. At the start of the coronavirus outbreak, the U.S. doesn't manufacture any PPEs anymore. Oh yeah, I want to talk about this. And so at the start of the outbreak, China told the U.S. told the Trump administration, "Don't talk about the origin of the coronavirus, otherwise we're going to cut you off from getting PPEs." And that would have cost American lives. Right. But like you could say, oh, America had no way of knowing that like PPE was going to be a thing in 2020 that we would need to have manufactured in the US. But they and, could have actually. Well, they they could have. But but my point is that there's there's a whole bunch of things that we've offshored to China, whether it's it's manufacturing or 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 even other other things, uh, you know, printing books and hey, so on. Hey, maybe we should be able to Make antibiotics here again, right? And so, so everything that that we that we we don't know, like we can't imagine that China's going to use this against us. But like, doesn't matter. We still need to have it be here. And there's a really strong argument for uh, being able, as a sovereign nation, to control your own industries or have them, you know, at least within your borders. Uh, it's going or, back to traditional nation states instead of this globalist. Right. Or if you had to have them outside your borders, you would want them in places a, that a friendly country yes. like like Canada or uh, UK. I mean, you know, I, I have Mexico, Mexico. But but yeah, like we're in countries that you're very unlikely to go to war with. Right. Like we're uh, not currently in a war with like China. Well, we're not at war with China. China's at war with us. What can I throw at you? Well, no. Well, that actually is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going somewhere else with that. But yeah, (laughs) you are right. They had war with us. We're not at war with them. 
you know, we talked a lot about this on America Covered, especially at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, about how there were American companies manufacturing PPE. They all offshored to Mexico or China. Um, there, there was only one company manufacturing surgical masks in the U.S. anymore uh, called Prestige Ameritech. And essentially, they had gone through this with swine flu back in... What year was that? 2014? 2008 or nine, I thought. No, it was, it was earlier. It was like 2009-ish. Okay. Well, it was during the Obama administration, but there was swine flu and it they basically, you know, we ran out of surgical masks and PPE. And then, you know, the American government and hospitals, whatever, were buying from Prestige Ameritech and companies promised them that they would buy from them. So they you know, hired a bunch of people, like got all these new machines. And then after the the swine flu ended, they almost went out of business because everybody went back to buying cheap masks from China. And they were purposefully keeping the prices low. Yeah. And so this is happening again right now. So there are companies that have started in the U.S. to manufacture N95s and, and uh, surgical masks in the U.S. And they're currently being... Uh, you know, undercut by China dumping cheap masks like for a few cents each to uh, the U.S. And it's not that they're manufactured. Yeah, it's cheaper to make a mask in China, but this is cheaper than the manufacturing price. They're actually dumping masks. So these companies are about to go out of business, these American companies. Uh, there's a, a company called Armbrust American that said they probably can only, uh, they started during the pandemic to make surgical masks and N95s. And they're like, we probably can only run for another four months if nothing happens, if hospitals don't stop buying the Chinese masks and start buying the American masks again, if the U.S. government doesn't start, you know, ordering from us this kind of, or protect us in some way, right? Maybe tariffs, different things. So, we went through this already once, and now we got hit with the pandemic, and we're going through it again, where everybody's like, oh, well, now their cheap masks are back. Gotta buy from the, gotta buy those cheap Chinese masks. It's just insane that we went through this whole thing, and swine flu was not as bad as the coronavirus in terms of the impact it had across society, right? So we should be more aware of the problem of relying on Chinese PPE, especially, Chris, the story that you told about uh, the Chinese government basically threatening the Trump administration. Holding Americans hostage. And earlier during the pandemic, they essentially stopped American companies that were manufacturing in China from bringing those masks to the U.S. While they were still allowing international flights from Wuhan around the world, but they were blocking flights internally. No, this is uh this is the issue where like 3M is manufacturing. No, I'm yeah. I'm just I'm just saying like while while China was making sure like we couldn't get PPEs and while they were hoarding from around the world, they were also making sure that flights from Wuhan were going internationally. Well, I think this is already like this is already like in March, so this is already that genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, but the hoarding happened earlier. Yeah, so the hoarding happened earlier, but they also stopped even in March. When it was getting bad in the U.S., 3M could not export mm -hmm. their N95s to the U.S. American companies operating inside China. Essentially nationalized for that period of time by mm -hmm. the Chinese government. 
So yeah, well, aren't, aren't you glad now that the pandemic is essentially over and we can all sort of go back to normal in our lives? And part of that is- Burying going, our heads in the sand again? Yeah, going back to China to do manufacturing. Yeah, what's uh, why the problem? Not? I, I, I see no possible downside to this. So what? what is the solution? The best I can come up with is, is time machine assassinate Rousseau. The best I can come up with is time machine Tamagotchi. Shelly, <laughs> it's, all it's up you. to you. <laughs> well, uh, is there anything we can do that doesn't rely on the time machine? Not that I can think of. Okay. Yeah, me neither. No, help us, Shelly. Uh, why do America. I always have to clean up the mess? Well, I think that basically, you know, it it comes down to the American people because we already know that the elites are not going to do anything about they have vested interests uh, in China and with the Chinese Communist Party. They're not going to do anything about this. You know, for for them, it's about, you know, as long as they can make money, they're not going to uh, say, well, yeah, we should probably pull our manufacturing out of China. Mm. You know? It needs to be a conversation Americans are having with each other mm -hmm. because big tech does not like people talking about this kind of stuff. There's a reason why none of our shows are like number one on YouTube. It's impossible to find any non-mainstream media news source on YouTube anymore. Uh, so people need to, I guess, watch our things. But the main point is they need to take this information and educate themselves and, and talk to others about it. Because we can't rely on just people somehow understanding this. And we need to elect officials that understand when people this. Un when yeah. people understand when the people understand they'll elect officials that understand because again we can't really rely on corporate america and i mean it has to be kind of a populist thing really mm -hmm. because uh, there, there are many u.s officials that are essentially bought off by the ccp right like there was what was it the george bush foundation gave a some I forget I'm gonna have to look this up but it was like this George Bush China Foundation gave their you know lifetime achievement medals to Henry Kissinger and Diane Feinstein like a, a month ago I'm getting the name of the foundation wrong but the idea is this foundation that George Bush of course was an ambassador to China back in the day and then after the Tiananmen Square massacre, he sent a secret delegation to China to reassure uh, the Chinese Communist Party that, like, don't worry, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to say some bad stuff about you now, but eventually we're going to work together again. And the sad thing about this story is, whatever this Bush Foundation is called, that should have been panned in every single media outlet. The fact that they give this award to Kissinger and Feinstein. Yeah. I mean, Henry Kissinger, obviously. By the way, this last week was the 50th anniversary of Henry Kissinger's secret trip to China ahead of uh, Nixon going there. And then, you know, Diane Feinstein, you know, has been uh, – her husband does so much business in China. She's been in bed with Chinese interests for decades in the Senate. And then, of course, there was the whole her driver was a secret Chinese spy thing. But yeah. that almost seems incidental. It, it's smaller versus everything else she's done. But, yeah, it's sad. Like, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of media like have great, great journalists doing great reporting on China. But at the end of the day, most American media 
is owned by one of five mega corporations, all of which have business ties in China. So this, you know, we can't rely on these systems anymore. We can't just rely on the government to take care of things. We can't rely on the media to educate us. We have we have to do things ourselves. And people, you know, the populists on the left and right have a lot more in common with each other than the elite. It's, but it's almost like the the elite want people on the left and right to fight each other instead of fighting oh, the elite. How about that? Huh. For everyone listening and not watching the video, you've missed some great body language acting from Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris. For your sarcasm. Yeah. Well, uh, I think one of the clearest examples for people about the how good the word of the Chinese Communist Party is, is good old Hong Kong. One country, two systems. So an American lawyer has been arrested. Yeah, because he got involved with what looked to him like this older guy beating up a younger in, guy. In 2019, uh, this, this American lawyer saw this old guy just beating the crud out of a teenager. And he was like hey, are you a police? And the guy's like, no, I'm not a police. I'm not a police. And so he intervenes. He stops this man from assaulting a teenager. Turns out the guy actually was a policeman and now he's going to jail for assaulting a police officer. Yeah. So, I mean, it. it part of that is just showing you that the police in Hong Kong can now operate with impunity. Uh, part of it is is perhaps the retroactive nature of Hong Kong laws. Well, the laws that weren't supposed to be retroactive. Right. Yeah. But they are retroactive. And I mean, I think this is something that is not true in a lot of countries, but in America, it certainly is, is that if you, if you commit, uh, well, if, if you do something that it was legal at the time, uh, but, but then you're arrested now for, but, but then a new law is passed that makes it illegal. You cannot be charged with that crime because at the time when you did that action, it was not a crime, right? Like if the U.S. outlawed good looks, you'd be fine, Matt. Uh, so, but I have to, I'd have to get really ugly really quick. That's true. As soon as you, yeah, if you uh, carry on those good looks. Uh, Shelly, why are you so uncomfortable suddenly? <laughs> okay, nothing, nothing. Uh, so at any rate, so American lawyer... Him being a lawyer is is kind of irrelevant to the story. It's just a little bit ironic because, you know, he was someone who was probably somewhat aware of, like, what's allowed and what's not allowed. Yeah. And, like, by assaulting this police officer, it's like when the police officer kind of lunges with a baton, he, like, grabs it and, like, holds him back. It's not like hammer fisting his nose into his skull. Right. So you're saying the police officer pulled kind of one of those football things where they, they fall on the ground and they're like, ah. Uh. Yeah, I mean, with Hong Kong, you know, there was a lot of talk uh, recently in the last year about whether essentially protesters in 2019 pushed too far. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what caused the national security law to happen and uh, this huge crackdown that's happening in Hong Kong now. But really... From the time that the UK and uh, signed the Sino-UK joint declaration uh, with the Chinese Communist Party, Hong Kong's fate was already 
written. Because you know? it goes back to ideology. They cannot allow one country, two systems. They can't allow a separate ideology. It was a beautiful lie. It certainly duped the queen. Well, and Margaret Thatcher. And yeah. The, but it's interesting because somebody was going back and looking at Wall Street Journal articles and opinion pieces from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the Wall Street Journal had been saying, you know, before the Sino-UK Joint Declaration was formally signed and afterwards just repeatedly going, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Some, you know, Screaming this is not, into the void. Yeah, like, this is not going to work out. You know, the people of Hong Kong have been betrayed. Yeah. Curse you and your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Yes, but... This is, again, the thing where, you know, people just act like, you know, China is a normal country. It's nice to have our heads in the sand, isn't right. it? And then also, like, this idea that, oh, well, the problem is the protesters who went too far. You're blaming the protesters. You're blaming up to two million people in the city who've been involved in, in one or more protests. You're blaming, like, nonviolent people who didn't assault civilians. They didn't. They didn't like, you know, uh, it's 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 insane to start blaming protesters for something that instead of the regime that's the, committing genocide is doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's this was a foregone, as you mentioned, Shelley, a foregone conclusion when the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed. I mean, fortunately, Hong Kong is still not quite mainland China yet. I know a lot of people in Hong Kong are kind of looking at uh, Falun Gong as the barometer. You know, Falun Gong, brutally persecuted in China, but allowed in Hong Kong. I mean, so, harassed in Hong Kong. Like We, we, we saw them being yeah. harassed when we were there in 2019. We saw it in 2014, even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know, essentially, legally, they were allowed to be there. Yeah, and so as long as that's still allowed, it's, it's, it's probably still okay in Hong Kong, right? This authorities going after Falun Gong in Hong Kong? Well, not yet, but... Basically, some of these pro-Beijing lawmakers in Hong Kong, you know, asked Hong Kong authorities to outlaw Falun Gong. So they were in this completely very spontaneous thing that happened. Uh, you know, first of all, Hong Kong's legislature is now just like a puppet legislature because they kicked out essentially all of the pro-democracy people. Uh, and so now it's just full of pro-Beijing stooges. And a couple of them, you know, brought up to, uh, you know, Chris Tang, who's the, he used to be the police com uh, commissioner. Now he's the number deputy two. executive, uh, chief executive. The number two yeah. position. So, the you know, they were like, well, you know, maybe the Hong Kong should outlaw Falun Gong, this, you know, dangerous organization, subversive, whatever. And uh, Chris Tong was like, well, you know, there have been 3,400 some police investigations or some kind of police actions related to Falun Gong. So, you know, we will investigate them according to law. Or he was a little noncommittal about it. it but it's so. like those investigations were basically like police going after some like, you know, auntie in a yellow shirt holding up a sign about you know, China's organ harvesting, right? Like, like it's not like incidents that Falun Gong committed. It's it's the police taking action against and we don't know, innocent There's people. also a lot of, because we were talking about uh, Falun Gong getting harassed in Hong Kong, there was this basically anti-Falun Gong organization in Hong Kong that was 
you know, backed by the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department to basically just harass Falun Gong people when they right. were trying to pass out, you know, flyers about human rights or whatever. They they would set up a, right next to them and try to film them and try to harass people who talk to Falun Gong people. So it was a lot of these incidents probably relate to that kind of stuff too. But anyway, so this is the first indication that you know they they probably will at some point go after Falun Gong. And so then what, 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 what will that mean? Does that mean labor camps in Hong Kong, detention centers, organ harvesting? I mean, I think that it definitely means, you know, if they actually outlaw Falun Gong, that means that you can't practice it publicly anymore. Right. right? And, and if you go protest something related to what the Communist Party is doing to Falun Gong, then you could be undermining national security. Right. So you could actually be charged with that. And under the national security law, they can also extradite people to mainland China. Right. So theoretically, a Hong Kong Falun Gong practitioner exercising their free speech in Hong Kong can get arrested, charged, and even potentially extradited to mainland China to face punishment. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if that starts to apply to any. Falun Gong practitioner in the world that travels to Hong Kong. Mm. I mean, I think probably now is not the time to go to Hong Kong. No, for anyone. Really? No. Right. Uh, But it's a little tricky because this is basically if you use the national security law, you're using a communist law in a Hong Kong system that previously had a totally different judicial system. So we don't really know exactly what that will look like. I think. But essentially, I think it's a sign that they're just going to go after anyone, that Hong Kong will not just be another mainland Chinese city, but it will be a mainland Chinese city that is considered a problem city. It'll be more like Xinjiang Xinjiang. than Shanghai. Yeah. And Hong Kong is a victim of the Western world not understanding this ideological war the Chinese Communist Party has been waging. If the West had been strong, that would have been deterrence to stop the Chinese Communist Party from doing that. If the West, if Great I mean, Britain hadn't even back, give up. We'd have to go back to the 80s, I think, because once they gave up the administration of Shelley, Hong Kong. We'd have to go back to Rousseau. <laughs> once, they, the, once they gave up the administration of Hong Kong to the Chinese Communist Party, there was... It without this is the problem with the Sino-British Joint Declaration. There's no enforcement mechanism, right? So if you violate it, oh, uh, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, but they they promise not to violate it. Yeah, mm. so that worked out great. But you know, we're gonna see essentially uh, the Great Firewall in Hong Kong. Yep, um, we're going to see. Either some type of, and this is not maybe very soon, but there are going to be things like, you know, detention center camp kind of things for ideological crimes against the Chinese Communist Party, either in Hong Kong or you're going to be shipped to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the all of this stuff that comes with CCP rule is going to be in Hong Kong, you know, the the surveillance is coming, like everything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't pretend to ourselves that Hong Kong will be different because it's Hong Kong and they still 
have this one country, two systems. It's going to be all of the horrible authoritarian things. And some of them may appear to take on different forms, like because the legal system is is different in terms of how it's structured. But fundamentally, it's all communist now as the sort of communist ideology infiltrates because you can't have uh, like once the legal system is compromised by like a communist power, then the only thing that's different from mainland China is the form, right? But fundamentally, uh, it's going to be exactly the same thing. So yeah, like every, everything, pro-democracy people, you know, uh, dissidents, religious people, uh, including Falun Gong, uh, you know, Tibetan protesters, you know, rights I lawyers. I hope there aren't any Uyghurs in Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. So like all of the groups are eventually going to be persecuted in Hong Kong because the Communist Party considers Hong Kong China. And that is exactly what is in store for Taiwan if the U.S. fails to defend it. No, no, no. Taiwan will be different because there'll be one country, two systems, and it'll be a separate system, Chris. Now imagine this regime being the dominant superpower. That's what we have to fight. You know, the the average between uh, a liberal democracy and authoritarianism, if you, if you try to find the average, it's authoritarianism. I don't it's, understand that. It's all authoritarianism until you get to like a government that restricts its own power and it restricts its own ability to go after people. And there's only a small handful of countries that actually do that, right? Like maybe one in 10 countries, uh, at most one in 20 countries has meaningful limits on its own power. Like most countries are authoritarian, right? And so like as soon as you start having the Chinese Communist Party, like, grow in terms of its superpowers, you know, ability to uh, be involved in the financial systems and and dominate trade with more and more countries. Like, it's going to seep into everything. And countries that are a little bit, that still kind of have their own systems are going to have those systems increasingly infiltrated by the Chinese Communist Party. That is a great point. The future, if we do not stop the Chinese Communist Party now, the United States of America will become more authoritarian. Right. We see we see tiny little pieces of this happening now and we don't recognize it. But like a good example is what you mentioned on uh, Friday on China Uncensored, Chris, is uh, Anne-Marie Brady is a New Zealand professor who made a, a comment on Twitter making fun of Chinese leader Xi Jinping. quite mild. Very yeah. mild. And, uh, and then Twitter briefly suspended no, her no, account. It wasn't suspended, it was restricted. It was restricted. So, so Twitter took an action, right? Which is the kind of action the Communist Party would have wanted. I'm not saying they took instructions from the party, but like this is little this little thing that that's an American company restricting free speech because they think that's what China would want even without a specific instruction. With Twitter, it's quite possible what happened was that like a lot of um, like pro CCP people reported. It doesn't tweet. matter. No, no, no. I'm just saying. Then, basically, it's a way of gaming Twitter's mechanism, right? It's like a way of gaming the system so that like oh, it automatically it restricts this, you know. Yes. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that 
is that like you, the you U.S. Have, will become more authoritarian, right? And you'll you'll see you'll see little bits and pieces filtering through the system that we've established, like through the American mechanisms, right? Like the American mechanism of speech is is not going to the 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 you know Times Square and shouting. I mean, some people still do that, um, but those are typically crazy people. The way that that people have speech now is through platforms that are owned by some company, Big right? Tech. And, you know, uh, we will start to increasingly see, if we're not careful, the sort of communist, inf- the Chinese Communist Party's influence filter through these tech companies. I mean, we already are seeing that. I'm not saying the tech companies are doing it. This is why I want to make clear what happened with, probably happened with Twitter, because you don't even need the companies themselves to be like, oh, we're going to listen to the CCP. The CCP finds ways to use that against you, right? Uh, For example, on YouTube, you know, this whole sudden flood of Xinjiang genocide denialism from YouTubers in China, right? Uh, And Serpent Zede did a video on this recently where he showed that a lot of these YouTubers were all obviously taken on the same trip Mm. to Xinjiang because... If you watch their videos, they kind of show up in each other's shots accidentally in the background because they're all kind of like it looks like they're all kind of outside like some main gate in in, uh, you know, I forget where this is, a room somewhere in Xinjiang. And they're kind of dancing with, Ah. uh, you know, these Uyghurs who are very happy and totally not uh, being genocided. And so this is a way that even without YouTube specifically going in and being like, well, we're going to restrict, uh, you know. Yeah, Yeah. this is what's happening now. Mm -hmm. In a future where the Chinese Communist Party has won its ideological war, where it's able to invade Taiwan without repercussion, I think we'll be seeing a lot more than what we're seeing right now. No, yeah, and like things, it'll kind of become the way it is in China where mm, everything is a political statement and you always kind of have to watch yourself uh, I was thinking about the one of the videos we showed in today's China Uncensored episode about the Vitasoy thing, where, mm-hmm. you know, this Hong Kong company, Vitasoy, drink maker, they got in trouble, they got boycotted by in China, right? And there was this just Chinese live streamer who happened to be drinking the carton of Vitasoy brand lemonade on camera. And then people were like, stop drinking that on camera. And he was like, what, what, did something happen? You know, he didn't know. Uh, and then they basically, people had to t- like kind of telegraph to him that it had to do with the Hong Kong thing, like Hong Kong issues without even using the words Hong Kong. There was like a, there was a, a shorthand way to say it without using the words because that would get censored. So, you know, this guy is just drinking a drink on camera and that's accidentally a huge political statement right right and just like the the way the political winds shift so quickly you know like like what's happened with vitasoy is like I, you know 6 months from now like no one's going to remember this it'll be a non-issue and probably vitasoy could be back on shelves in china but like now it's like this huge sin that you're getting canceled over so but like this is the same. I remember when you know you mentioned uh, uh, Serpent Zede, and he, when he was on our podcast, he was talking about how 
when he was in China, there was like briefly this political wind that shifted against Apple and everyone had to throw away their iPhones, right? And waste like all their money that they'd spent on their iPhones. But that's because like iPhone was like, like Apple was not okay. But like everyone has iPhones again now, so it doesn't matter, right? So it, it's just, it has nothing to do with the product. It has nothing to do with any like concrete thing. It's just a political wins. And yes, we will start to see that increasingly in the U.S. The, the degree to which we're seeing this kind of stuff in the rest of the world is correlated, you know, step-by-step step with how much power the Chinese Communist Party has. So the trick is to not let the Chinese Communist Party get any more power. And so that is up to us. We have to educate ourselves and... In particular, people need to educate themselves about communism and what communism's true nature is and be able to see the logical fallacies of their arguments and when this sort of communist ideology comes up in other places. Either that or time machine to kill Rousseau. Or time machine to get Tamagotchis, distribute them to all the Communist Party officials so they get so distracted by Tamagotchis that they don't bother to take over Hong Kong or the rest of the world. Okay, you just might solved. be on to something. I think man. I am. I think I am. You so know, technically, gonna... it doesn't even require time travel since Tamagotchi exists now as, as an app. On well, your phone. I mean, it's kind of already too late for Hong Kong. So you'd have to go back to the 90s, get the Tamagotchis, then go back to the 80s and give one to Deng Xiaoping. No, because then they'd have super technology. Imagine what China could have done if they had Tamagotchi technology a decade before the West. Yeah, it's game over. It's game over, Shelley. No, you got to do it my way. Which is. What again? Yeah, go back to the 90s, get a bunch of Tamagotchis, give them to all the party officials so that they're distracted and they don't bother to, to try to take uh, over Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, so, we're good to go. But they've already taken over Hong Kong. Well, early 90s. Okay, actually, got to... You know what? I don't, I don't like what you're doing right now because you're basically finding holes in my argument which I personally feel is like a personal attack on me. Also, the, the, the effort into exposing logical fallacies of a time travel Tamagotchi plan. Yeah. It's beneath you, Shelley. Yeah. There's also obviously the issue of when you, when you travel into the past and then you go back to the future, which future are you going to, right? That's true. Well, that's back to the future rules. Well, do you, have, do, you have, do you have branching uh, futures or do you have one single future that has to unify based on what was done in the past? So there's a lot of... A lot of complications that we haven't addressed. And thank you for this. For And thank you for joining us for this kind of hard-hitting China analysis that you can't get anywhere else. Hey, I love talking about time travel stuff. Save it for the video game channel. Okay. Or the history channel. Is there a time travel video game? Yes. Many, many games have you travel through time. Uh, yeah. What about Zelda Ocarina of Time? And uh, N64. That was a... I'm not old. <laughs> 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 anyway, thank you for watching. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And we'll talk to you next time, unless somebody assassinates Rousseau, in which case everything will be different. See you next time.